0: ...under whom the, uh, the very famous city-state of Babylon became the capital of a vast kingdom, an empire, an empire really, although we do call it a kingdom, uh, as Hammurabi fought to uh, and ultimately succeeded in uniting Mesopotamia. Um, Like uh, Sargon of Akkad, episode 214, I mean, it was last week, mate, get across it. Uh, Hammurabi was a great conqueror who was one of the very few people in history to bring essentially all of Mesopotamia under his rule. But he did a lot more than just conquer. Hammurabi is famous even today for his Code of Laws. The Code of Hammurabi is one of the most influential legal documents in human history, and its impact is still felt today in the 21st century in modern legal systems. It wasn't the first code of law by any means, certainly not, but it is easily the most famous one from ancient times um, as it set out the principle, the legal principle of retributive justice. In other words, an eye for an eye. This is one of the central tenets of biblical justice, which has, of course, been massively influential on the development of Judeo-Christian societies, which tend to have a fair bit of influence. The Western world has, for better or worse, over the last couple of centuries, uh, played a huge role in in shaping a lot of international and and, and global culture, and that includes the development of legal systems around the world. And uh, while... You know this this principle, this this eye for an eye principle, which was later popular popularized by the Bible, and and even today is pretty informative on, on, on the way that uh, crime and punishment is handled in many places in the world. While this didn't necessarily begin with Hammurabi, his use of this clear and consistent and ultimately rather harsh set of laws in governing his realm sets him apart in history as a man of a very great importance even now well over three and a half thousand years after his death it's it's good to be getting across some more properly ancient history today just like we did last week there are you know five or six centuries separating Sargon and Hammurabi of course but we do tend to lump them in together, and there are certainly there certainly are some parallels between the blokes, which, uh, which of course we'll get across, but we're going to talk about so much more than that. We'll, uh, we'll kick things off by talking about Hammurabi's career as a conqueror, uh, how he built his realm by conquering other Mes- Mesopotamian city-states and kingdoms. Then we'll move on. We'll talk about his code of laws and how even today we can see the way that he has helped to shape modern legal systems and our approach in the modern era to crime and punishment. So a lot to get across as always. Let's get into it. Here we go with the story of Hammurabi and his code of laws. Let's go. We're going all the way back here. We're going all the way back uh, to the 19th century BCE, long time ago. This means, of course, that we, are before, because we're before the common era, we're counting years down, not up as time passes, say the same thing every time. Um, we're going back to around the year 1810 BCE. That's over 3,800 years ago, uh, roughly when young Hammurabi was born. He was born as, as the son of the king of Babylon, Sin Mabalat. Uh, and you might remember uh, we, us talking about uh, Mesopotamian culture, uh, the you know and society and the 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 structure of city states in the time of Sargon. Uh, last week we talked about this, and, and despite four or five centuries separating Sargon and Hammurabi, there are still a lot of similarities between how Mesopotamian society functioned. Uh, it was still an area that was filled with city-states all squabbling and jostling and even fighting for dominance or actually really – so it wasn't much of a dominant – I mean, dominance came into it, but really it was just for farmland. They all wanted the, 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 the best land possible up and down the Euphrates, up and down the Tigris, um, uh, and I guess with better farmland dominance so maybe the two things really ultimately meant the same thing um, anyway this is the this is the setting in which we find Babylon at the time of the birth of Hammurabi uh, the city has been around for a long time uh, it's been around uh, at least since the time of Sargon uh, we talked last week about how Sargon either helped develop Babylon or just actually outright founded the city altogether. Um, uh, but even by the time Hammurabi came along, even in the intervening centuries, it's still pretty minor. Overall, Babylon is not, you know, we sort of think Babylon today, one of the most famous cities in ancient Mesopotamia, but at the t- I mean, there's a reason that we're talking about Hammurabi and the fact that Babylon became so famous is, is no accident you'll, uh, as you'll find out, uh, uh, as part of this episode. But at the time of Hammurabi's birth, it's, it's a relatively minor city state, um, it's surrounded by much more powerful kingdoms and empires made up of, of multiple city-states, kingdoms like Mari, Ishnuna, Yamhad, and Lhasa. Um, and even though Hammurabi's dad, uh, Balat had managed to conquer some other city-states surrounding Babylon uh, on his own, he'd, he'd managed to forge the beginnings of a kingdom for himself, um, Babylon was still outmatched in terms of power and influence. And uh, in terms of actually even really being a kingdom, this was a very new concept for uh, for people living in Babylon. Uh, Simna was the first bloke to actually style himself as a king in Babylon. So, you know, Simna he conquered uh, the cities of Borsippa, of, Borshippa, of, of Kish and Zippa. Uh But many of the other nearby kingdoms, as I say, much more powerful, much bigger. And one of them in particular, Larsa, right, to the south, uh, to the southeast, was uh, very wealthy, very prosperous. Uh, and it's uh, it's the city, the actual city itself, Larsa, uh, in the centre of this kingdom uh, was a very, very rich and, and wealthy place for people to be. Uh, Lhasa had expanded its influence a long way to the south, all the way along the Persian Gulf. And uh, this, for this reason, you know, the, the coming and going of trade goods, uh, the fact that many of the cities that Lhasa had conquered were already very prosperous and added their wealth to the kingdom – Larsa was a very juicy target for conquest, and uh, Simbalat decided that he would be the one that would overthrow Larsa. He decided to challenge Larsa with his smaller kingdom of Babylon. He gathered an army. He, mar- he marched southeast to attack the city, and promptly had his ass handed to him on a silver platter. That was that. The Babylonians had to retreat with their tails well and truly between their legs as a result. And we're not exactly sure why, but after this defeat, Simbalat actually abdicated. He abdicated the Babylonian throne in favor of his son Hammurabi in either 1792 or 1795 BCE. And there are competing theories as to exactly why he stood down. Some say that Simabal abdicated in shame after the defeat. He considered himself unfit, unworthy to rule. But there are other theories that indicate that he was actually quite old by this stage and that his health was failing him, and that he decided that this, the time was right for a transition of power. Whatever the case, that was it for him. Hammurabi's turn. Hammurabi's turn has come, and he becomes the king of this new and, at this point, somewhat fragile kingdom of Babylon. So perhaps very wisely at this point, Hammurabi didn't adopt the aggressive posture that his old man had taken, well not yet anyway, and instead he focused on consolidating what he had. He focused on consolidating and strengthening his reign and his kingdom. Um, His dad had begun a series of building and infrastructure projects and Hammurabi concentrated on them instead of on outward expansion and conquest. He built temples, he developed farmland, he maintained old buildings, and perhaps most famously of all, he improved the mighty walls of Babylon. In time, Babylon's walls would be considered impregnable, the strongest walls in the world, and Hammurabi was a big part in getting them there as he held them had them built higher and thicker than ever before. Now, they would eventually fall, uh, but it would take over a thousand years. So Hammurabi did a very bloody good job with them, creating mighty, mighty walls that would defend the city for more than a millennium. Anyway, all of Hammurabi's efforts within his small kingdom were, look, I mean, you know, doubtlessly the bloke wanted to improve the lives of his citizens. He wanted to help to build wealth and prosperity within Babylon. But, there was definitely another side to the the infrastructure projects, to the development, to to the to the money, the time, the resources that Hammurabi was pouring into his kingdom at this point. There was a political purpose to be achieved uh, with what he was doing here. Hammurabi knew that with his dad's defeat in Lhasa and with his position as a as a new ruler, he wasn't going to be able to rush into invasion and military campaigning like a bullet at gate. And I have to say, he harbored ambitions of conquest very deeply indeed, but recognised he recognized that he would be unable to fulfill them without a strong centralized power structure for himself in Babylon and, of course, as well, strong public support in order to make sure that people were behind him in both a figurative and a literal sense when he was waging these wars. So, in addition to all the building works, the infrastructure projects and everything else, he also did a couple of things to try to bring his people on side, support him as a ruler and again drum up this public support that he knew he would need. He forgave a bunch of people's debt, which is, you know, a very good way to get people on side. And also, embarked on a series of of temple building projects in a in a in a, you know, very open and obvious display of uh, of piety. And people love this. He became very popular very swiftly as people saw this bloke, you know, not only forgive all their debt, but also paying his due to a, to the gods upstairs. So a very good way to get his people on side um, indeed. And for the first five years of, of his reign, that was Hammurabi's focus, public support and a stable functioning government. But it wasn't the only focus because he also spent five years building up quite a sizable army. He took advantage of the public support that he was enjoying in order to drive recruitment and help people, you know, into the army to swell his his army's ranks. His dreams of conquest would soon be realised. And uh, when the time came, let me tell you, Hammurabi was ready. Because five or so years into his reign, a kingdom to the east of Babylon, Elam, you might remember them from the episodes about Sargon and Ashurbanipal, get across them, uh, the Elamites... They invaded, and they ultimately defeated a reasonably powerful neighbour of Babylon's, Eshnunna. You remember I mentioned them earlier. The Elamites attacked and ransacked Eshnunna's cities. They subjugated them and spread Elamite influence further into Mesopotamia from the east. And realising the risk that united and allied Mesopotamian kings, kingdoms posed to the Elamites' continued advancement. The Elamites weren't, strictly speaking, Mesopotamians. They lived on the other side of a mountain range and, and were seen as outsiders by all of them. I mean, you know, all the Mesopotamian city-states squabbling, whatever else. But at the end of the day, they have a common enemy in the Elamites. And realising that this was uh, something of a risk to the Elamites' continued advancement, The Elamites uh, then attempted to sow discord between the various Mesopotamian kingdoms. A very wise strategy, you would think, right? Because there's bad blood between a lot of these city-states. For instance, Babylon and and Lhasa. It was only half a decade ago or so that these two kingdoms kingdoms were at war. So... a pretty pretty wise move, you would think, on the part of the Elamites. They start slagging off Babylon to Larsa. They're there, bagging out Larsa to Babylon, hoping to divide and conquer to make sure these Mesopotamian kingdoms don't team up against them. And this plan failed spectacularly as Hammurabi very, very quickly sniffed out what was happening, what the Elamites were trying to do. And so rather than, you know, deepen the rivalry and enmity between Babylon and Larsa, Hammurabi instead turned around and actually approached Larsa with an offer of alliance against the Elamites. He knew that the Elamites were up to no good. He, he knew they're trying to cause some trouble in the neighborhood and he wasn't going to let them. So Larsa agrees to this alliance, puts, you know, let, let's let let's let us bygones be bygones. It was five years ago. Let's ally with these, uh, with these Babylonians and we'll deal with these Elamite bastards who've come over the mountains here. And before long, Hammurabi is readying his troops to take the fight to the Elamites. And happily for Hammurabi and for Babylon, the fight went very well indeed. The Elamites were handily crushed, they were driven back east over the mountains, and their plans for expansion well and truly put on the back burner by a swift and decisive response from Babylon led by Hammurabi. However, it wasn't all sunshine and roses because Hammurabi was actually left feeling pretty bloody unhappy about things when all was said and done. At the end of the day, Larsa, I mean, they'd had agreed to this alliance against Elam. Oh, yeah, mate, absolutely. We'll fight him with you. Don't you worry about it, mate. We got you back 100%. But they just didn't. Larsa just did not pull its weight in the fight against Elam. They left Babylon to defend the Mesopotamian heartlands without really making much of a contribution themselves. And as you might imagine, Hammurabi is not impressed, mate. He is spitting chips about this. He's filthy. So what does he do? Well, he sends emissaries to the north, to the kingdoms of Yamhad and to Mari, and he forges alliances with them as well. But this time, not against the Elamites, they've been driven back to the east. This time, he forges alliances with them against Larsa. And the other kingdoms are happy enough to throw in their lot against Larsa. Larsa is rich and prosperous, and, and you know they like the idea of knocking Larsa down a peg or two and having some of that wealth for themselves. And so With the backing of his new mates, Hammurabi, who was still pissed off with Larsa at not having really gone up against the Elamites with him as they said they would, and of course harbouring long-term ambitions of southern conquest anyway that he'd inherited from his dad, he marches into the kingdom of Larsa. And it was here that Hammurabi put to use a technique that would serve him very, very well in warfare. As so much of Mesopotamian life revolved around uh, the access these cities had to water thanks to their rivers... And as Hammurabi was upstream from Lhasa as he marched the southeast towards the Persian Gulf, he, the approach he took was a, a, a novel one and a very effective one. He simply dammed up the Euphrates before it flowed into the city of Lhasa. And this did two things. Firstly, it greatly reduced the supply of water to Lhasa, which obviously had devastating consequences for its population. Their, I mean, you know, not, not just their water supply, their food supply as well. They're not, they're not able to water their crops. And secondly, once enough water had built up behind this dam, Hammurabi had a devastating weapon that he could use at a moment's notice to essentially destroy the city of Lhasa. And that's just what he did. Once enough water had built up behind this dam, Hammurabi ordered the dam to be broken all in one go, and the water rushed out towards Lhasa. It left carnage and destruction in its wake before completely flooding the city itself, and so... After this, I mean, after having restricted access to water for however long the siege lasted, then after having the opposite problem far too much water in the city it was altogether too easy for Hammurabi to march in, capture the city of Lhasa in its ruined state, filled with weakened and parched citizens, although they, you know, probably weren't that thirsty anymore, really. Anyway, I've mentioned how wealthy Lhasa was. Um, It bordered the Persian Gulf, it benefited from river and sea-based trade, and now with Hammurabi in control, that wealth began to flow to Babylon instead, as Larsa had been so roundly and comprehensively defeated. But Larsa's geographic position had another important consequence for Hammurabi and his conquest here, because to the southeast of Larsa, there's the Persian Gulf, To the east, it borders the mountain range, which on the other side is Elam, who Hammurabi has already beaten. And to the southwest, there's just desert, uninhabited desert. The only other border that Larsa had was with Babylon. And now that it has been incorporated into Babylon, with Larsa conquered and amalgamated into Hammurabi's kingdom, there is no one to challenge Hammurabi's supremacy in the south. There are no belligerent neighbours. There are no external threats to Babylonian control over Larsa. There's no one who can try to muscle in on Hammurabi's newly captured territory. And this is huge because it means, you know, while Hammurabi obviously has to make sure he smoothly and successfully incorporates Larsa's territory into his kingdom, he doesn't have to defend it from anyone else. And this allowed him to continue his campaign of conquest, not having to slow down and deploy troops and defend his new position, his new possession to the south. So where did he go next? Well, the Elamites had conquered Ishnuna, you'll remember, uh, before Hammurabi drove them back across the mountains to the east. But with Eshnunna softened up so very nicely, I mean, with it, you know, just lying there on the, ready to be plucked like a juicy peach, it would, I mean, it'd be, it'd be rude, really, if Hammurabi weren't to take advantage of this opportunity. It would be very, very wasteful. So he marched on Eshnunna. He marched his troops back up north and marched them towards the city and then right past it, along the Tigris, until they had completely passed the city. And the Eshnodans are going, oh, geez, I thought, okay, well, I thought we were cactus here. I thought that was going to be it too. We're going to get, you know, two for the price of one, another invasion. That's going to be it for us. But no, he's Hammurabis just marched on along the Tigris. Oh, great. Okay, well, that was a freebie. Why did he do this? Well, you may have already guessed. Of course, it had worked in Lhasa, so he's going to do it again. He built a dam, this time across the Tigris, he dried up Eshnunna's water supply, and then he released the water to flood the city, just like Larsa. Easy peasy. He's two for two on the old city flooding trick, nice one there, Hammurabi, and the Babylonian kingdom grew a little bigger as a result as as Eshnunna fell. And it only got larger and larger as time passed. Hammurabi was a very fickle ally, uh, I have to say, and after conquering Larsa, Larsa and Eshnunna, He actually turned on the allies that he had made years previous in Mari, and he conquered them as well. Now, this isn't the most principled thing to have done, certainly. No one's trying to defend that. Uh, But Mari had grown to be rich and prosperous after a series of campaigns of their own to the north, and Hammurabi decided that the alliance no longer suited him. And look, We don't know with 100% certainty why he decided to break the alliance. In all probability, it's just because Mari was so wealthy and important, he wanted that for himself. But whatever the case, Hammurabi ended up marching on Mari, captured the city, brought its kingdom under uh, under, under Babylon's control, and then did something even more difficult to explain than his original breaking of the alliance – Because while Hammurabi had flooded cities in the past, this didn't actually outright destroy them. It was a quick and efficient way to disable and capture them. But the city was ultimately left standing once the flood water receded. But for some reason, however, we really, really don't know why he did this. Hammurabi decided to raise Mari to the ground not long after capturing it. Again, not the most principled thing to do, not by a long shot, and not something that's easily explained when much of the rest of Hammurabi's career as a leader was defined by his adherence to the rule of law and his determination to improve the lives of the people that he ruled over. Mari was burnt to the ground, however, and we still argue about why. It may be a simple reason. It may be that Mari was a rival, a rival to Babylon in terms of its splendor and, and, and wealth and opulence, and so Hammurabi just wanted to wipe it off the, off the map and have the, you know have the problem done with. But this doesn't make a lot of sense because it's generally better to gain control of a wealthy city for yourself rather than destroy it altogether. But that's what happened. And in the years that followed, Hammurabi continued campaigning north into the kingdom of Assyria, where he again ultimately emerged victorious, although this war took a little longer, apparently. Uh, But ultimately, Hammurabi had united most of Mesopotamia under his rule, just as Sargon of Akkad had done before him. An incredible feat and one worthy of a lot of recognition for sure. But. I'm kind of whizzing through the wars and the conquests as you might have noticed because honestly history is just filled with conquerors and their stories aren't all that different. Go here, kill these people, take the city, recolor this part of the map. Yeah, boring. We've we've heard it all before. I want to get to the other part of Hammurabi's career. I want to talk about what is in my view a much more important legacy to discuss. The part that has defined the way that we see Hammurabi today—the the, the the thing for which he is undoubtedly the most famous—and that is, of course, his code of laws, which has survived through to this very day. You can go to the you can go and see the Code of Hammurabi in the Louvre in Paris. Uh, Hammurabi didn't consider himself a mere conqueror. This is what's so interesting about his career as a conqueror: is that's not what he considered his greatest legacy. No, he. He saw himself as a builder, as a lawmaker, someone who sought to meaningfully improve the lives of his citizens. And unlike Sargon, who even after his conquest had to deal with rebellions and uprisings and whatever else, once Hammurabi had finished conquering, his people lived in relative peace and stability. And this was in no small part due to Hammurabi first creating and then enforcing his code of laws throughout his entire kingdom this code of laws represented a truly massive legal reform that would echo not just throughout his kingdom but throughout history for better or for worse i mentioned before hammurabi's code of laws uh it wasn't the first code of laws in history uh, although people often mistakenly claim it was no there, there were other mesopotamian kings that predated hammurabi with their own codes but hammurabi's is the most famous ancient code of laws for a few different reasons and, and we'll talk about them now Prior to Hammurabi, much of the law of the land in Mesopotamia, whether it was encoded or not, it was highly localised. It was specific to regional culture and it was often restorative in nature. Now, restorative justice certainly is, I mean, it's a very interesting area. It's something that even today we're still learning a lot about in the way that it can be applied in in an interconnected and globalised world. But certainly a lot easier to facilitate when it governs small groups of homogenised people living in small city-states um as you can imagine when people have strong cultural or tribal or social links with each other, resolving issues and disputes that required the intercession of the law was was relatively easily achieved as it wasn't quite quite the adversarial process that, that, that it often can be but Hammurabi, didn't rule over just one small city-state with a homogenous culture. No, he ruled over a, for his time, vast kingdom, incorporating many different languages and cultures and ways of life. So all of a sudden, within his realm, you've got citizens of the same kingdom with different cultures, speaking different languages, holding different values. And restorative justice is not so easily achieved when there is a level of cultural disunity as people in different places view different crimes and trans and transgressions in different ways i mean this hasn't gone anywhere it's still the case today in some parts of the world like pakistan or saudi arabia or brunei something like adultery can carry a sentence as severe as death for a woman who's involved whereas in others adultery is illegal still but doesn't carry penalties that are quite as harsh, such as in the Philippines or in some parts of the United States, like Oklahoma and and, and Wisconsin and Michigan. But then in other areas, adultery isn't illegal at all. It may carry social penalties, certainly from disapproving friends, but it's not a criminal matter. And these legal differences are fundamentally cultural in nature. So what was Hammurabi's approach in uniting his entire kingdom with all of its different cultures under one set of laws? Well, He did away with the more traditional restorative justice approach and instead set out a system of retributive justice, which is, again, law based on the principle of retribution or, rather more simply put, an eye for an eye. And if you're thinking, once again, like you maybe did last week, hang on, I've heard this before. Hammurabi, he's just pla- hes buddy ripped off the Old Testament. This is Exodus again. These these buddy ancient Mesopotamian kings plagiarizing the Bible once again. We have caught him with their pants down. Well, to make it even more unfair, Hammurabi ripped off the Bible a thousand years before it was even written. Because once again, we are at a period in history where, where people like Hammurabi and his code of laws predate the Bible by centuries upon centuries. Exodus, which is a foundational text of all the major modern Abrahamic religions, it reads, you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. And I'm not saying that Hammurabi invented this concept, law codes that predate him some of them were also reliant on elements of retributive justice as well but the adoption of retributive justice and 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 the laws that supported it throughout his his sprawling kingdom plus the fact that it has survived through the modern era more or less intact makes it all the more notable and the fact that you have a document or a series of, of, of stories so critically important to Modern society, as as the ones that are found in the Old Testament of the Bible, that you know, are so in so instrumental in so many major modern religions, that were influenced by this bloke and the 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 laws that he set out. I mean, it is very very difficult at this point for us to understate the importance of Hammurabi's Code of Laws. He was a very very influential lawmaker. The laws that he encoded proved to have a massive and. An unprecedented impact on the development of law and the legal systems that enforce it over the centuries, over the millennia. But what was in the code specifically? I know that's what you want to hear. and And I'm glad I asked, because happily, we have more or less the entire and complete text, even today in the 21st century. Why do we have it? Because it was carved into great big stones for all to see. And one such stone has survived, and as I mentioned, is on display in the Louvre. So let's go through it. Let's talk about some of the highlights from this fundamental legal document, uh, and talk about some of uh, the ways in which it has so powerfully impacted the development of our legal systems for so long. It opens with, well, it's actually it's kind of difficult to describe what it opens with as anything other than a very long and overblown essay about how great Hammurabi is. Um, I'm going to call I'm going to I'm going to call a spade a spade here, and I'll tell you that, yeah, Hammurabi's Code of Laws. It it starts by talking about just how terrific the bloke who wrote them was, Um, but it also does shed some light on to what Hammurabi was trying to achieve with these laws. It gives us a sense of purpose for this document, what his his priorities were, how he wanted to be remembered, because part of this opening talks about how the gods summoned Hammurabi to lay down the law for the benefit of his people. Have a listen. This is what It says, Anu and Bel called me, Hammurabi, the exalted prince, the worshipper of the gods, to cause justice to prevail in the land, to destroy the wicked and the evil, to prevent the strong from oppressing the weak, to enlighten the land, and to further the welfare of the people. Hammurabi really did want to improve the lives of his citizens, unite them under Babylonian rule, and, 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 and to forge a stable and secure and prosperous kingdom. And when we get to some of these laws you'll think you'll raise your eyebrows and go jeez oh, buddy, hell is a bit full on habarabi what are you doing there and you know we are kind of going on his word but he does seem to have had a real concern for the welfare of his people all of his people importantly conquered or not not just babylonians all the people who were in many cases against their will brought into his kingdom and one of his one of the tools that he used in seeking peace and stability and prosperity for all of his people in addition to building projects and the infrastructure and everything was this code of laws and again i'll warn you as we get into these laws they are they're not going to sound progressive or forward thinking they are going to sound backwards and barbaric um and that's because they are because they were written over three and a half thousand years ago they were a marked departure from previous approaches to the law in this region, which, as I said, it very much focused on being restorative, on, uh, on on compensating the victim of a crime. But Hammurabi's approach uh, to crime and punishment was very much about the punishment and quite harsh punishment as that. In attempting to provide an unambiguous and consistent approach to law and the consequences of crime, Hammurabi overrode regional cultural differences and instead instituted a clear set of laws with corresponding punishments for breaching them. And in most cases, these punishments were, as you'll see, related to the crime itself. This is where the concept of an eye for an eye really started to take off. So we've beaten around the bush for too long. Let's get into some of the laws and let's highlight now this principle, this legal principle of an eye for an eye, for instance, In quite a literal sense, under Hammurabi's code of laws, if you blinded someone, your punishment would be to be blinded as well. An eye for an eye, very, very literally. If you broke someone's bone, you would have that same bone broken in your body. If you knocked out someone's tooth, you would have one of your teeth ripped out of your head as well. But that's just where it starts. It's not just about personal injury. If you're a builder under Hammurabi and you do a shoddy job and a wall collapses, You have to repair the wall at your own expense fair enough that's not a particularly groundbreaking piece of i mean that that, if anything that is restorative right that's that's something that compensates the the victim of well not not a crime but perhaps negligence but if you're a builder and you do a shoddy job and a wall collapses and kills the owner of the house that you just built you as the builder will also be put to death there are all sorts of laws about the conduct and negligence of skilled workers. Physicians would have their hands cut off for malpractice. Gardens who, gardeners who ruined the gardens that they looked after would have to pay for the loss of neglected plants. And innkeepers who didn't report criminals meeting in their inns could be executed. Holy moly, these laws did not muck around. But we still haven't come to the truly unbelievably harsh stuff here. For instance, if a man kills a pregnant woman and he has a daughter himself, his daughter is put to death. And if you remember our shonky builder from before, if his collapsed wall doesn't, it doesn't kill the owner of the house, but instead kills the son of the owner of the house, guess who dies? The builder's son, not the builder, is executed. I mean, how is that for an, it's not just knife for night, that's a son for a son. Now the code also has a lot of other laws relating to quite a, quite a large uh, portion of it is devoted to family law uh, laws about relationships and most of it of course is filled with the sort of misogyny that you'd expect from most of human history women were expected to be chaste and monogamous of course and they were more or less forced into a submissive role of what was essentially ongoing domestic servitude much of much of Hammurabi's code of law supported this however i do have to say The code did also enshrine a number of protections for women, some of which might surprise you given how long ago this was. In particular, penalties for sexual assault were extremely harsh, extremely harsh, usually just death for for any, any form of sexual assault. And women who wanted to divorce unfaithful husbands could do so. And on top of that, would also receive a fair bit of money from their cheating ex-husbands as compensation. Although, I have to say, and again, you won't be surprised by this, if the woman was found to have been unfaithful as well, she would be killed by drowning. Um, I mean, in fairness, as would the bloke that she's having the, the affair with, but you know, it won't surprise you to learn that women faced much, much, much harsher penalties for, for that sort of thing than men did women could also abandon their marriages and marry a new man if their first husbands disappeared or were unable to provide for them satisfactorily. Um, And there's just some of the the many laws about families and legitimacy and inheritances and the like. I mean, when it comes to inheritance, there there were laws that prevented men from disinheriting their sons, and there were legal mechanisms for the legitimization of children born out of wedlock. So, Family law goes back a long, long way. And not all of it was retributive under Hammurabi. In fact, much, much of his code, all the boring stuff, it wasn't really retributive at all. It was just, I mean, what would you call it? Regulatory, I guess. A huge amount of the code of Hammurabi was uh, was about industrial relations, for instance. There were laws uh, that outlined how much money was to be paid for everything from uh, working as a field labourer to hiring a boat or an ox Um, Not a whole lot of blood and guts in the wage regulation laws, let me tell you, but it does just go to show how specific and how uh, all-encompassing this ancient code of laws got. Finally, a large section of the code dealt with, of course, agricultural law, farm law, everything from the irrigation and maintenance of fields to the management of livestock Agriculture was a massive part of Mesopotamian society, and these laws reflected that. There were stipulations that protected farmers who lost lost their crops to storms. Uh, it, it, this is great, actually. It read like this. <clears throat> if the storm god Adad devastates his field or a flood sweeps away the crops, a farmer wouldn't have to make payments on debts for a year. So there were, there were all sorts of protections for uh, for people working in the agricultural industries, as well as many other industries in addition to the punishments, you know, getting your hand chopped off if you were a dodgy doctor. But with almost 250 laws, I'm afraid to say we don't have time to get across every single part of the Code of Hammurabi. But it is really very interesting to read through. And I suggest you have a it if you're interested. Well, you know, like any legal document, some of it's pretty dry and some of it's pretty boring. But it does shed a lot of light onto what is quite an advanced piece of legal technology i suppose that was developed again i mean we're pushing nearly nearly four thousand years ago here it's a very famous document particularly due to its contributive approach to justice which obviously heavily influenced mosaic law centuries later the cornerstone of much of judeo-christian based legal systems but it does show us just how enormously significant Hammurabi's legacy as a lawmaker is, particularly with Abrahamic religions being such a big part of society through to this very day. His influence on their development is felt today, even in the 21st century. Unfortunately for Hammurabi, however, his kingdom didn't last anywhere near as long as his laws. It crumbled within a generation of his death, as his successors were completely unable to follow in his footsteps. Hammurabi had forged his kingdom, his empire, really, just as Sargon of Akkad had, uniting Mesopotamia once again. But by the time his conquests were complete in the 1750s BCE, Hammurabi was already aging and unwell, and by the year 1750, Hammurabi was dead. Aged around 60, a life of campaigning and leadership had taken its toll, and his life ended. And so too effectively did his kingdom. His son Samsu-iluna succeeded him, but wasn't able to maintain the peace and prosperity that his old man had managed to create throughout uh, throughout the kingdom of Babylon. There were incursions from incursions from neighbouring realms. Uh, City states on the borders of the kingdom declared their independence. The the code of laws be damned, they said. Uh, and within a year, the kingdom that Hammurabi had built was fractured and and lost. And, and to us today, I mean Babylon is perhaps the most famous of all the ancient Mesopotamian cities, and for good reason. It remained a rich and powerful city for many years afterwards, centuries afterwards, but nowhere near as rich and powerful as it had been under under Hammurabi. But everything ends, and in time, Babylon did fall. The Elamites, who Hammurabi had beaten so handily during his time on Earth, returned with a vengeance they looted babylon and they took with them a stele on which was written the code of hammurabi they returned with it to their homelands and it's very bloody lucky that they did let me tell you because around 120 years ago in the year 1901 ce it was in the old elamite city of susa that this stele was found by archaeologists and that's why we have such a complete record of hammurabi's code of laws even without this discovery and without the renewed interest in Hammurabi that it brought about, Hammurabi remained an important and immensely influential figure in history. Because the impact that his code had on the development of the ancient and then the modern legal system is difficult to overstate. And in much of the world, justice still does have an unfortunate focus on retribution rather than restoration, and the fact that that is so heavily ingrained in human culture in so many parts of the world has, in some part at least, when it comes to enshrining that principle in a legal system, it comes back to Hammurabi and his code. For better or for worse, so much of humanity's enduring retributive approach to justice can be traced back to Hammurabi who didn't just live the life of a great conqueror as he reunited Mesopotamia once again, but also gave civilization a great code of laws that still, to this very day, influences the way that we live our lives. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of Hammurabi. And it's been great to get across some properly ancient history once again, just like we did last week. So I do hope you've enjoyed it. I'm going to wrap up the show pretty quickly this week. As you can hear, my voice is uh, not up to scratch. I did manage to uh, procure for myself a case of COVID-19 this week. Yes, that's right. Aren't I lucky? Uh, So I've been struggling with that. The old voice has been, uh, well, I mean, you can hear what it sounds. I actually actually don't mind how it sounds. It does sound a little deeper, maybe a little smoother, that sonorous baritone coming your way. But uh, no, the rest of it has really sucked. So um, yeah, got the episode out there. So, you know, that's what matters. I uh, <laughs> got there one way or the other, uh, but it has been a struggle. So thanks for uh, sticking with me as, as I got through it with this, uh, you know, slightly different voice. It'd be funny listening to these back, back-to-back back is, you know, in, in the time that comes, you'll be like, oh, right, okay, there's... There's one where Riley was sick. And I remember years ago, I don't get sick very often. Years ago, there's another episode where I'm really, really struggling with my voice as well, but got through it. So that's all that matters. Anyway, all the normal boring housekeeping stuff, uh, contact form, Patreon, merch shop. Thank you very much to the people supporting me. Spread the word, friends, enemies, people you feel ambivalent about. That's that. See you back in next week. Uh, maybe, hopefully, with an improved voice. We'll see how we go. Um, or, I mean, depending on what you think of my voice now, maybe my voice will sound worse. Maybe you want me to be sick everywhere. Maybe I should go around licking doorknobs and, and getting COVID every single week. So my voice sounds like this, you know, from now until forever. But um, yeah, nah, nah, no, thanks. Not, not great. Anyway, we're done. That's it. See you next week. Until then, leaving you with the question posted read. Of course, this one comes to us from Abu Ben Adam, who asks, has anyone tried to compile and execute the code of Hammurabi?